Welcome to the Epidemic Belfast podcast. I'm Dr Tom Thorpe, a researcher on the project and a public historian. Epidemic Belfast is a public history and medical humanities learning resource from Ulster University. It aims to map the changing experience of infection and disease for individuals and communities in the unique urban environment of Belfast from the 19th century to the present day. On today's programme, I talked to Dr Nigel Farrell about his research into cholera epidemics in Belfast during the 19th century. Nigel is an associate lecturer in history at Ulster University and he spoke to me from his offices in Coleraine. Nigel, welcome to the podcast. What exactly is cholera? How can one catch it and how does it affect human health? Because obviously it's a disease that we are fortunately not um, uh, aware of much in the West today. But could you tell us what it what it is and, and how you, you could catch it and obviously can catch it in certain parts of the world today? Sure. Um, so cholera is an acute gastrointestinal illness that kind of first came to prominence around 1817 when it began to spread out of Jizor, which is in Western Bangladesh now. Um, and in other areas, southern, um, areas of southern India as well, where it was pretty much endemic at the time. Um, and it became epidemic as it spread out of this part of Asia by sea and land to other Asian countries um, by the 1820s and then later on uh, into Europe as well. And as it spread, it was sometimes accompanied by kind of descriptors, um, like things like spasmodic or epidemic or Asiatic or Indian even. Um, which kind of referred to its appearance in, a, in, in what was seen in the West as being a new and much more deadly form. Um, and it also, importantly, what it also did in the West was differentiate it from um, sort of milder form of the illness, which was, or, 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 or of illness generally, uh, that was common in Britain and Ireland um, during the spring and summer months, uh, which had similar symptoms, but uh, much milder. Um, it was often known as English cholera. Um, which would have been similar to something like we would recognize as gastroenteritis now, or perhaps even norovirus or something like that. Um, but the disease itself comes from a bacillus known as the cholera vibrio, uh, or vibrio cholerae. Um, and it's transmitted to people in a number of ways. You can get it from food or clothing occasionally, uh, but most commonly it's transmitted by what's known as the oral fecal route, um, whereby the, the bacillus is ingested uh, normally by drinking water that's been um, contaminated by the feces of another cholera sufferer. And when you get overcrowded and sanitary urban spaces, like places like Belfast and other industrial towns as well, where you get shared water supplies, shared privies, shared rubbish heaps, like middens and so on, uh, once an infection takes hold, it spreads fairly rapidly. Um, but what's really interesting about cholera, I find, is that to actually get um, or to become quite severely ill with it, you have to ingest quite a lot of the, the bacillus um, because it needs to survive the acid environment of the stomach where a lot of it's actually killed off um, before it moves into the small intestine. And when it moves in there, that's where the trouble starts. Um, and when it takes hold in the small intestine, the, the, the symptoms are, well, they're remarkably fast acting and, and they're pretty horrific. So, um, what it does, the bacteria produces a toxin um, in the small intestine, which causes it to produce a lot of water. And this is, uh, to put it politely, expelled <laughs> in cholera's kind of signature symptoms, which um, uh, is acute diarrhea. And this is also accompanied often by quite severe, often violent vomiting as well. And what happens here is this, 
These two symptoms deplete the body of essential electrolytes and um, cause dehydration. Um, but these two real signature symptoms are accompanied with a number of other things, things like agonizing muscle and stomach cramps. Um, you'd also get the victim's skin turning a kind of blue tinge or taking on a blue tinge or a leaden tinge, it was sometimes called. And this was caused by poor circulation um, and, a, and a subsequent thickening of the blood. It's every bit as horrible as it sounds. Um, and in the severest of cases, people would often die within just a few hours of becoming ill. And we can still see it now. It, it happens uh, in third world countries uh, now and, and it happens for similar, well, pretty much similar reasons but it's much more easily treated now these days. So what was the extent and nature of cholera epidemics in Belfast? When did they occur and how many people died as a consequence? Okay, so there were, there were four epidemics in all. Um, there was 1832, 1848-49, 1854-55, and, and another one in 1866. Now, generally speaking, they had decreasing levels of morbidity after, after mid-century. Um, but mortality rates tend to, uh, to, to, to rise in some cases. Um, 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 but what's really interesting about Belfast in particular is that it's really far from the worst affected large town. But what we, we do have to be careful with the figures. Uh, as with other events, uh, we need to approach the figures with a degree of caution. Having said that, certainly for the first epidemic, um, Belfast figures seem to be fairly accurate. Um, even contemporaries like William Wilde commented on them as being some of the most accurate in the country. Um, so overall in Ireland, in the first epidemic, we had there were about 66,000 cases, over 25,000 deaths. The true figure will never be known. Um, in Belfast, the Board of Health reports um, just under or just over sorry 2,800 uh, 2800 cases. Uh, there are 418 deaths which is a mortality rate of around about 15%. Now, if we compare this to somewhere like Dublin, it's about half. So Belfast is doing remarkably well. Um, when we get to 1849, uh, 48, 49, the rates increase, um, but this is something that's, ex that's common everywhere that experiences cholera. Um, figures for Ireland are about 36,000 deaths, uh, but again, the accuracy is not quite clear. Uh, but we certainly do see the rise in mortality evident in Belfast. Um, again, if we take the Belfast Board of Health figures as being fairly representative, uh, there's a massive rise in cases, about 3,500 cases, um, and just under 1,200 deaths. So the mortality rate more than doubles to about 36%. And when it comes again in 1854, there's kind of a disparity in the recorded statistics, but if we look at what I looked at was the, the per law commissioner's report from 1855, it seems fairly accurate. Um, the number of cases is significantly lower um, in and around 1900 or just under 1900 um, and about 677 deaths. Um, so again, an increase in mortality to around 36%. Um, and when we get to 1866, now it's a strange one because really, 1866 isn't really, certainly in Belfast, um, and you could argue for Ireland too, um, that it's not really a full-blown epidemic at all. In Ireland, there are about 4,300 cases and about 2,300 deaths. But in Belfast, um, one of the doctors at Seton Reid reports just 28 cases, just 15 deaths, so not really an epidemic at all. Um, but personally, I thought that was a little bit low. So in my research, I sort of 
dug around a little bit more in the, the Belfast newsletter and things like that. Um, and I found the evidence of at least 43 cases. Um, and also um, um, what was really significant was that there was a, a major attack of diarrhea reported in the town uh, at, at that time as well, which results in around about 200 cases of further six deaths. And sometimes cholera diagnoses are mixed up with, with diarrhea diagnoses, so the figures can get sort of uh, scrambled together. Um, but it's really interesting in the 1866 is, is, is that this argument about the figures and their accuracy um, is debated roundly. Um, it causes considerable debate among the, the, the poor law guardians, for example, uh, and of the other various agencies involved. And, and one of the guardians, a chap called Samuel Tierney, uh, actually says that the figures were manufactured um, and, and then that the, the, the the, the, the figures that were reported to the sanitary committee who were responsible for drawing them up were actually compiled by a boy who, was, who wasn't qualified to give an opinion. Um, but my feeling is at this time, Cora's kind of, Belfast is, 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 seems to have benefited from being an unfortunate escapee, if you like, of, of where cholera can be sometimes sporadic. It, 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 it can attack one place and not another. Um, and I think Belfast was probably quite fortunate in 1866. And after this, cholera comes again on occasion, but never, never again at epidemic levels. So why did these epidemics break out in Belfast and whom did they affect? Well, um, why is a kind of difficult one to answer. Um, but my feeling is that because Belfast was a port town, um, shipping, well, trade, commerce, the movement of people in general, um, has a lot to do with how cholera arrives in Ireland. Um, there's also a really interesting debate um, about uh, repatriated paupers in 1832. Now, these people are people who are sent back from areas of England and of Scotland where cholera had been prevalent. Um, and the problem here is that they're provided sometimes with bundles of old clothes. Um, and certainly cholera could have been, the bacillus could have been carried within them, but more than likely what happened was these people had cholera symptoms and had maybe hidden them. Um, and they traveled back to Ireland on steam packet ships and on coal boats, things like that. And they arrive into ports like Bangor and Donoghadee and they make their way into Belfast, uh, or some of them do. Um, and they, it's really, it's really quite important this because about a week after their arrival, we actually see the first case of cholera in Belfast. Um, and this happens in a place called Keelian, uh, which is a little narrow street, very close to River Lagan. Um, and it's a man called Bernard Murtaugh who lives in a lodging house that's actually owned by his brother. And apparently there were two people who had, who had come from Scotland who had stayed in the house that, um, during that uh, previous week. Um, and he dies very sadly, very quickly um, after contracting cholera on the 29th of February, 1832, just 19 hours after becoming ill. And I think that later epidemics too also seem to have this connection to shipping and the movement of people and goods. So my feeling is that, that it mirrors what happens elsewhere globally, where cholera kind of follows the movement of people. Um, and I think that's some, some trade, migration, things like that are some of the most significant factors. Um, but there are anomalies, of course, like I said, sometimes cholera will attack one place and leave another one alone. It's just one of the curiosities that we come across with epidemics on occasion. Um, 
in terms of who was affected, well, pretty much anyone really. Um, like many of the other diseases of the period, having said that, um, that it was arguably cholera had much more of an impact on the lower orders of society. Um, and this is again pretty much common everywhere that experienced an outbreak. So did a, a person's sort of living conditions, obviously that might be connected to their socioeconomic mm. status, did their sort of the state of their housing and where they lived within Belfast increase the risk of infection? Yeah, I think so. Um, and certainly everywhere everywhere it travelled, cholera became synonymous with poverty, with squalor, with ne neglect. And this was equally true of Belfast. Um, but while, like I said, it was it was more prevalent in the localities of the poor, um, a higher socioeconomic status certainly was no guarantee of protection. Um, indeed, cholera was just as likely to visit the doorstep of, of the well-to-do as, 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 as the less fortunate. Um, and again, we see this in practice um, in, in, in Belfast and in other places too. Um, and we, we see it among people who would have likely to, have, uh, even in professions, who would have came into contact with the poor and probably more importantly, the sick. Um, from at the lower end of the scale, people like lodging house owners, like Bernard Murtaugh's brother, um, to even just family members who are, who are dealing with sick relatives or the, or the bodies of the deceased as well, to at the other end of the scale, people like clergymen, people like doctors. And there are some really sad reports. Um, there's one in particular, or there's a couple in particular that stood out for me. Um, there's a doctor called William Buchanan, who's practicing in a, in a, in a, in a suburb called Ballymacarrett, uh, for example. And he's working tirelessly in the, in, to treat cholera patients often getting very little sleep and, and so on. And he contracts cholera um, and he dies on the 12th of July, 1832. Now, what's really sad is that he leaves behind a wife and five children with no real visible means of support. Um, and in fact, uh, what happens is in the newsletter, there's an advertisement for a fund to be raised to support the family. Now, I don't know what happens to them after that, but obviously it's, it, it, it's, 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 quite, it's quite a sad um, uh, end and, and a possible sad end for the family to, uh, too. But probably most notable among cholera's wealthier victims was the banker, um, quite famous banker, William Tennant, um, who was said to be the richest man in Belfast at the time. Um, and he dies on the 20th of July, again, right at the height of, epi of the epidemic in 1832. At the ripe old age, it has to be said, of 73. Um, but this, his death had a really enormous impact among the wealthier classes because it really emphasised that wealth was no real protection uh, from cholera. How did ordinary people respond to these epidemics? Yeah, well, fearfully in a lot of cases, um, especially with cholera being kind of exotic and, and associated with foreign climes. So there's a, a certain culture of of fear. Uh, people weren't all that keen, for, uh, for example, on the idea of having to go into hospital. Hospitals weren't seen as, as places of, of where you went to, 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 to receive a cure. Um, and they were also uh, not too happy about things like temporary uh, hospital accommodation being set up in the in close to the areas where they lived. And um, so we sort of understand that. Um, sometimes there was violence, although we don't really see that so much in Belfast as we do in other places. Um, certainly in England and Wales, places like that, you, you get cholera riots. Um, but we do see some instances um, in Belfast, for example, in 1832, in the first epidemic, 
um, in April, at the very, very start of it, um, two of the Board of Health uh, members, uh, Drs. Kidley and Wilson, are visiting a cholera patient, um, and a crowd gathers outside the house and starts to shout abuse. Um, there's talk of poison, and the doctors are called poisoners and so on. But certainly there's much less evidence of it in, in Belfast uh, than there is in other places. But attacks like this kind of show that there was a kind of um, atmosphere of fear, of confusion, and certainly a lack of knowledge that exists among the general public. And I think we can we can relate to that just now. Um, but also um, what I find is there's a considerable amount of sympathy with, with sufferers, and there's a desire to help in communities as well. Um, but what's also important to consider is that uh, when cholera attacks, ordinary life carries on pretty much as, as, as it certainly doesn't come to a halt. Um, it carries on largely as normal, so commerce, trade, social life even um, continued. And that's probably because the social consequences were as, if not more worrying than a short-term but violent illness uh, like cholera. And what treatments were available to combat cholera and how effective were they in sort of the mid part of the 19th century? So um, treatments were many <laughs> and they varied widely. Um, and to be honest, most, if, if any of them had, had, real, had, a, had any real effect at all. In fact, I think um, that Norman Howard Jones uh, described them perfectly when he argued that most treatments uh, that were administered in the 19th century for cholera were little more than a form of benevolent homicide. Um, but having said that, doctors were, they really were trying their best to help their patients. It's just that the, the science, the knowledge, the medicine and so on was really just in its infancy. Um, but there are a number of, of treatments that are favoured. The Belfast doctor, Henry McCormick, uh, for example, favoured uh, what was known as the Indian method. Now, it wasn't Indian per se. What it was, was uh, a treatment that had been um, administered in, in India by Europeans. Um, and this combined bleeding patients uh, with the administration of opiates like laudanum. But laudanum was okay because that helped with the pain and so on. Um, but bleeding was, was pretty common. The idea of being to restore the circulatory system. Um, but, you know, there was obvious dangers involved there as well. Um, but alongside this, there were the use of, of various purgatives, various emetics. Um, this was really common, things like um, mercury or calomel, as it was known. Um, and the idea was being that these would drive the poisons uh, that, from the body. But all they really did was just hasten the dehydration because they, they just cause more vomiting, more diarrhea. Um, and in addition, you get um, stimulation is a, is a big thing. Even simple things like um, vigorously rubbing a patient's limbs, um, with the idea being that it relieves the cramps and, and so on, but you get hot water flannels used and things like that as well. And, and also alcohol. So even though, um, yeah, it's like, even though temperance is widely advocated, and also alcohol, the use of alcohol is blamed for those who get cholera and, and other diseases too. Um, you find that alcohol is used widely as a, as a, as a preventative and, and, and as a cure, and whiskey particularly in Ireland. Um, and there's some really quite notable treatments. There's, there's, a, there's a particular favourite of mine, so uh, prior warning, this is a bit icky. <laughs> 
Um, so it's, it's, it's administered by a Belfast doctor called Thomas Thompson. And it's described in the newsletter as being peculiar, um, but eminently successful. Um, and it involves an enema. Um, enemas were quite popular as well, right bleeding, and you get tobacco enemas and all kinds of different things as well. But this one had a pint of arrowroot uh, with a glass and a half of whiskey and 80 to 100 drops of laudanum, all mixed together, thin enough um, to, as the newspaper described, to be thrown up the intestines as warm as the patient can bear it. Now, that doesn't sound very pleasant. And uh, I suppose it's, it's, it's little wonder that Thompson actually reported that patients suffered to such a degree that he was actually frequently attacked by them. So that's your treatment for you. <laughs> what, was the, what was the response of public health officials, local government and medical practitioners to these epidemics? And did their attempts solve the problem? Um, like, like the treatments, public health responses were, were, were many and varied and, 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 and both in approach and, and indeed success as well. They didn't really solve the problem. That was helped much later on when you get better sanitation, better water supplies and so on. But most common responses saw that the houses of infected people were whitewashed, uh, their clothing and sometimes their personal possessions were burnt. Um, their houses were sometimes fumigated with things like chlorine gas, and you get that used in some public spaces as well. Um, but most significant, I think, probably was that these and other responses uh, to were, well, using a little bit of hindsight, they were often employed correctly, but they had an incorrect theory behind them. And uh, this was miasma theory. Um, so the idea that diseases were spread through dirty or fetid air, um, but having said that, miasma theory sort of did seem to lead to these public agencies, uh, like the corporation or like the guardians later on, um, of the realization of, of, of there being a greater need to, to clean up public spaces. To, to, uh, to, to, so you get a fairly large scale program of, of removing nuisance materials, as they call them. So all the filth and dirt of every imaginable kind that are coming from the middens and, and things like that. Um, cleaning up the streets, uh, there'd be clear stops, sewers, um, um, and clean up places like where there were slaughterhouses and so on. Places like the, the very notorious Hercules Street, which was in the centre of Belfast. Um, they would remove, there seemed to be also, I tend to find in the records quite a lot of removal of dead animals for some reason uh, left in the streets as well. Um, and also, as, as, you, as you go later on, you get increased prosecution of people for public health offences. And again, infamy is, is no protection from that. So even the famous baker, Barney Hughes, which I'm sure most people will have heard of, uh, there's, a, there's a, a rhyme about him that I always knew as I, I was growing up as a kid, I'm not repeat, I'll not do it now. Uh, but he was, he was actually prosecuted in 1848 for keeping swine on his, or pigs on his premises on Fountain Street in the centre of town. Um, but one of the things I think is particularly significant, certainly with the first outbreak anyway, is the, is the quick and unarguably proactive, certainly at times, response of public health officials and the medical fraternity in Belfast. Um, so in 1833, for example, they did things like they set up a local board or a Belfast Board of Health well in advance of cholera's appearance. Now, this is particularly noteworthy because it went against the, the advice of the, of, of the Central Board of Health in Dublin, 
um, who, who had said that cholera boards or local boards should only be set up once an outbreak had been confirmed. And this was kind of a little bit after the fact, really. Um, but Belfast Board drove the response to cholera forward, certainly in 1832. Um, they made things like arrangements very quickly for a temporary hospital accommodation. Um, they split the town into a number of manageable medical districts, which were overseen by members of the board. They were assisted by uh, people who were called visitors. These were people who would go out and inspect um, streets and, 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 and their residents, and they would report back on things like the cleanliness of the streets, the health of the residents. Um, and we sort of see the, the stepping up of, of cleaning efforts um, in public spaces, um, which is a great deal of civic pride in Belfast. Um, you know, there's all these lovely, beautiful corporate buildings and so on, but in behind them is this, you know, um, dirty uh, courtyards and streets and narrow alleyways and things like that. So there's a bit more of an effort to try and keep them clean as the century progresses. Um, but there's always arguments, which is, um, um, there's surely always arguments about, um, as there was through every epidemic, about um, who just who was responsible for keep, for the sanitation of Belfast, and, and also arguments about the efforts or, or the lack of, in some cases, uh, about that was being made to sort of keep the team, town clean. But I feel that one of the biggest issues was that once an epidemic had, had passed, once it had abated, um, these same, it, it kind of passed from mind often. Um, and you don't get the same level of hygienic practice being, uh, being uh, used consistently. So diseases can return quite frequently. Um, but overall, I feel that if, if we consider the size of Belfast population at the time, it's continuing in rapid growth throughout the whole century. I think that people like public health officials, medical men, um, and everyone else who responded, people even write down like street cleaners or night soil men, considering the task that they, they faced, the limited knowledge and experience that they had, I think they did a fairly sterling job. And, and arguably, they, they prevented much larger scale mortality in, in Belfast that was experienced in other uh, towns and cities globally, certainly in Europe. My final question, Nigel, is where can people find out more about your work? Okay, uh, well, well, there, there are a number of things about cholera epidemics. My PhD is obviously available in the library at, at Korean University, uh, um, but it's also in the British Library's e-theses catalogue, which will be much more accessible for, for people. Um, I also have a blog post, um, which is on the Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland website, um, which is from a few years back. Um, and also, there's a number of other things that are out there just now. Uh, Gillian Alman from, from Queen's has recently did a piece uh, for History Ireland, um, I think just in 2020, um, that's available now publicly. Um, there are also some other, some other bits and pieces on uh, the Belfast City Council website, uh, the Belfast Poor House website I've done a little bit as well. Um, and I feel there's also lots of other, uh, lots of further investigation that can be undertaken using the massive array of sources that of primary material that's available in places like the public record office and, and other repositories too. I think really what, what, what I've done is, is just really just scratch the surface so much and there's so many other directions that I feel could be explored in terms of cholera and certainly other epidemics in 19th century Belfast and further on as well. Nigel, thank you very much for your time. Thank you Tom.
Thank you for listening to this episode of Epidemic Belfast. For more information and to read articles related to today's episode, as well as other ones in the series, you can visit our website www.epidemic-belfast.com.